This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I am speaking with John Lindstrom about nature study. And John was one of our first guests on High Theory, so it's wonderful to have him back. Excited to be back. John, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is John Lindstrom, and I am a Mellon Foundation postdoctoral fellow in climate and inequality at the Climate Museum in New York City. I did my PhD in English and American Literature at NYU. And for the purposes of this interview, also relevant that I am the series editor of the Liberty Hyde Bailey Library for Cornell University Press, which is reintroducing the literary and philosophical writings of Liberty Hyde Bailey to the 21st century. And the newest volume in that series, this is the first volume? The newest and the first, yes. The newest and the first volume of that series is titled The Nature Study Idea and Related Writing. So what the heck is nature study? Indeed. Well, nature study has meant different things to different people at different times. It's a pedagogical tool and movement in education, historically most often associated with elementary education, although it's been used in universities and adult classes. It came into being in the American progressive era, which is 1890 into the 1920s. And it's still used. There are still nature study practitioners today who use that term. However, I will focus on the origins of nature study and the way that Bailey describes it in this book. There were two big nature study texts, which were the Handbook of Nature Study by Anna Botsford Comstock, which sort of an application of the ideals of this movement. And then there was the Nature Study Idea by Liberty Hyde Bailey, which was the sort of philosophical foundation of the movement. And it was considered kind of the Bible of the movement for a while. Can you give us some dates for when those books were first published? Yes. 
So the Nature Study Idea was published in 1903, and then Comstock's Handbook of Nature Study was 1911. And that quickly became the bestseller in the field. In fact, it is, I think to this day, the best-selling title from Cornell University Press. It's continued to stay in print, unlike Bailey's book, and is especially popular among homeschool teachers. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. So in terms of what it actually means, uh, let me tell you a story. Okay. So 1903, this book begins, a contributor to a recent issue of a leading technical journal has endeavored to find a satisfactory answer to the question, what is nature study? We might say, what the heck is nature study? By appealing to, quote, eminent scientific men, end quote. The answers of these men are printed there in full. Now, the nature study movement is not a product of eminent scientific men, nor directly of the current natural science movement. It is a product of the common schools. And he goes on to say, eminent scientific attainment is not in itself a bad thing. It doesn't preclude someone from being able to teach nature study. But actually, that's not where it comes from. So the backstory to this is Bailey, who was born in 1858, went to Michigan Agricultural College, which is now Michigan State University. And he grew up on a farm backwoods, got to go out to college, and studied with a pretty eminent botanist named William Beale. And Beale was a big fan of Beale. Beale helped him a lot professionally. Fast forward, Bailey ends up becoming the dean of the College of Agriculture at Cornell and a leading thinker about agricultural education and the role of universities in educating people in rural America who traditionally didn't have much access to higher education. So he becomes involved in the nature study movement and publishes a little pamphlet titled, What is Nature Study? And it's this beautiful text. And his most succinct definition is, nature study is the seeing of things that one looks at and the drawing of proper conclusion from what one sees, which is a beautifully circular and um, not very helpful definition, but he uses it over and over again. He actually really likes it because he believed it was this movement that he was observing and he was working with teachers in these small one, two-room schoolhouses across New York State who were experimenting with this pedagogy that took students out of the classroom and into the yards and gardens and woods surrounding the classrooms to learn directly from nature. There's a lot of interest in natural history at this time during the progressive era on the development of natural sciences. And these schools had traditionally been reading, writing, and arithmetic. Like the 19th century pedagogy was still dominant. A lot of recitation where you're reciting from a book directly in front of class or memorizing a text and then practicing elocution. The sciences really didn't have a very prominent place in So teachers thought, well, this is a fun way to do some of this science. This seems really important and interesting. And Bailey thought what was happening was really exciting. So he publishes this essay. And I don't know all that happens in the several years after he publishes that essay, but apparently Beale does not like this. So Bailey's mentor publishes basically a rebuttal to Bailey's essay, although he couches it in the terms of like this general movement that's happening. And he publishes it in the journal Science. Bailey's publication had been a leaflet distributed to rural school teachers. But Beale kind of pits 
this against real scientific education and says, you know, what's happening in the schools is actually dangerous. He gives the example of a classroom he visited where this teacher was proudly showing Professor Beale her nature study project with the students, and they were drawing pictures of bees and flowers. And he says the pictures were all wrong. The bees had the wrong number of wings. The flowers had the wrong number of petals. This kind of illustration is dangerous, not only to every student who produces it, but every student who looks at it. Um, and, and a lot of these attacks are highly encoded with sexism. So there's a lot of this is sentimentalizing. It's, you know, gushing sentimentalism. Beale actually publishes a two-part piece under the same title, What is Nature Study, as Bailey's original piece. And the second one quotes a list of eminent scientific men. So then a couple years later, actually, I think just like one or two years later, Bailey comes out with a full book. And the first chapter title, which I was just reading the introduction of, is titled, again, What is Nature Study? And he's sort of saying, let me tell you what it is. It's a movement led by teachers, implying, you know, mostly led by women. And Bailey hired the first women professors at Cornell to lead the Nature Study Bureau there, Anna Botsford Comstock being the first, the author of that handbook. So you've got Bailey's circular definition. He goes into a little bit more detail. It's about student-centered, exploratory, hands-on learning from the natural world. And for Bailey, especially from the commonplace and everyday, he says a lot of textbooks are taking students out of their own realm and they're you know beginning education from the kind of cosmic and then moving down rather than starting from the near at hand and moving out it's more important to interest students in the worlds they actually inhabit than to get them excited about things they may never see that have no relevance to their lives cool how does this thing work how do i use nature study yeah so not for science, apparently. Okay. <laughs> Bailey, Bailey has this, in that same first chapter, one of my favorite paragraphs, which I can say by heart, is just, nature study then is not science. It is not facts. It is not knowledge. It is spirit. It is an attitude of mind. It is concerned with a child's outlook on the world. In other words... Nature study is an orientation toward education and a kind of philosophy of life. That doesn't mean it's anti-science. And Bailey was a horticultural scientist professionally. He said the sciences had more to fear from these accusatory scientists in universities than they had to fear from these teachers who were getting children excited about the world around them at school. He believed that the way you use nature study is you get to know a little bit about something in your neighborhood. And then you take students out to look at it and you engage them in questions and in curiosity. And then he said, as soon as you come to a topic that you don't know about, you boldly say, I do not know. And your students will appreciate you the more for that admission. <laughs> and then... At Cornell in particular, 
the reason that Bailey ends up starting this nature study bureau at this land grant university that we now think of as Ivy League University. Bailey was specifically involved at the time. This was before he was the dean. He was the director of the experiment station, which is this entity that's meant to be engaging farmers in the area around questions of concern to them, doing experiments to see how we can address these challenges and improve the quality of agriculture in the state. And they get funding from the state for nature study in order to address the problem of farmers leaving the land for the city. Um, And basically, there's this economic depression and farm crisis that happens in the 1890s, and everybody's freaking out about it because they're like, look at all these abandoned barns on the roadside. Like, who's going to grow our food? Who's going to, thinking about it in an ecological way, who's going to be stewarding the land? And I want to read another passage. In a certain rural school in New York State of, say, 45 pupils, I asked all those children that lived on farms to raise their hands. All hands but one went up. I then asked all those who wanted to live on the farm to raise their hands. Only that one hand went up. Now, these children were too young to feel the appeal of more bushels of potatoes or more pounds of wool, yet they had this early formed their dislike of the farm. Some of this dislike is probably only an ill-defined desire for a mere change, such as one finds in all occupations, but I am convinced that the larger part of it was a genuine dissatisfaction with farm life. These children felt that their lot was less attractive than that of other children. I concluded that a flower garden and a pleasant yard would do more to content them with living on the farm than ten more bushels of wheat to the acre. Of course, it is the greater and better yield that will enable the farmer to supply these amenities, but at the same time it must be remembered that the increased yield does not itself awaken a desire for them. I should make farm life interesting before I make it profitable. So there you have the soon-to-be dean of one of the major colleges of agriculture in the country at a land-grant university that's based on this mission to serve the farmers and the mechanical arts of the nation, saying it's not about fence row to fence row, more bushels to the acre. It's about a whole worldview and quality of life that's rooted in a more open-ended kind of scientific inquiry and also an artistic appreciation. One of the things that people like Beale hated is when these nature study teachers would teach poetry. And Bailey loved using poetry in his nature study examples, and he has a whole chapter on that in the book. So from Cornell's perspective, they were kind of doing this funny dance where they were saying like, well, nature study is important to like the economic future of agriculture in New York State. And the way to safeguard that economic future is to make farm life more interesting and rewarding (laughs) rather than simply increasing yield, which of course can lead to a lot of negative consequences anyway. It's a really different vision for land-grant education than what would take hold over the course of the 20th century, but it's one that I think people are starting to kind of turn to more recently. Let me ask you our final question. How will nature study save the world? So for Bailey... He thought that nature study in the schools, what probably the best outcome of the nature study movement would be the cultivation of a broader 
Outlook to Nature, which was then the title of the next book in a series that the Nature City idea was a part of. And he thought this outlook to nature, which anyone could have, whether they were city dwellers or country dwellers or scientists or farmers, but a general orientation beyond the immediate sphere of your individual human concerns and affairs that kind of slowed down the process of awareness and was attentive to birds and the trees and the plants around you, that that would actually help to unite the fracturing of country from city, which he was already concerned about at that time. He thought this is one way to sort of start to develop a common language and that we needed, you know, in that quote I said before, he says, nature city is not science. It is not knowledge. It's not facts. It is spirit. He had this kind of spiritual quasi transcendent. I do think he was influenced by the transcendentalists, even though in some ways he's more of a pragmatist of his period in line with a lot of things that like John Dewey was writing at the same time. But he believed that the nature of the human relationship to the world was a sort of spiritual relationship because our bodies are composed of matter that we've ingested from other bodies, whether plants or animals or a combination thereof. And that by necessity put in his mind, the farmer in a kind of fundamental relationship to society and one that many farmers as well as people living in towns and cities didn't think a lot about. And he grew up to see the extermination of the passenger pigeon, which was, you know, darkening the skies and these massive clouds of thousands of birds in their annual migrations across North America. He remembered seeing that as a child. And around the time that the Nature Study Ideas published, there are just scattered flocks of like numbering in the dozens rather than the thousands and some living in zoos. And he's, I think, maybe a decade away from the extinction of the passenger pigeon. And he thinks that those kinds of ecological crises are the result of losing contact with this fundamental relationship that is everywhere apparent. And it's like at once spiritual, but also very like hard-nosed and factual in terms of the materiality of our subsistence, right? So he thinks that we need to reclaim or, or relearn or learn for the first time that relationship to save ourselves from the kind of destruction that we had seen with the passenger pigeon, with the buffalo that was happening at the same time west. There's a lot of ways that this ties in with critiques of colonialism that Bailey wasn't making explicitly, but we might make. So nature study was the kind of practical on the ground means of cultivating that outlook to nature. When we think about our current ecological crisis of climate change and the ways that that is tied up with systems of oppression and injustice, it's becoming increasingly clear, and this is something that we talk a lot about at the Climate Museum, that the science is pretty well accepted. I mean, there are holdouts, but the problem increasingly is not convincing people that climate change is happening. It's how do you galvanize a culture shift to demand the rapid phase out of fossil fuels and 
you know, reallocation of resources to communities and nations most heavily impacted who have contributed the least to the crisis. And it's a huge political and social and economic lift that needs to be driven by culture change. And that means engaging the arts and the humanities. I think there's something really useful in the way that nature study was being advocated for at this time in the progressive era, which was also seeing a lot of celebration of the possibilities and insights of science and the sciences, but that sometimes bleeding into a kind of top-down technocratic, I mean, we really actually associate the progressive era with this approach to solving complex problems in a kind of reduced way that often leads to unintended consequences. There's still a lot that can be learned from a movement that was intentionally integrating the sciences with the humanities and the arts as co-equal partners, not as antagonistic forces or competitors for austere resources. So I think that's another way that Nature Study can help us save the world. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Kim. It was a real pleasure. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.